Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Imagine awakening one morning to find that the skies overhead have turned from their usual seasonal azure to a brownish rusted orange. The air, you notice, is thick with smoke and grit, and the jagged horizon beyond the ridge of your homestead is ablaze, a raging fire throwing up smoke and embers into the atmosphere, blotting out the day's early sun. The fire wasn't supposed to be headed this way, not according to last night's weather forecast. It was supposed to have burned off by now. But conditions changed, and now the front marches directly, relentlessly, toward your property, your home. You turn on the radio and tune into the local news station, only to discover that an evacuation is already well underway. The roads, you know, will be bumper to bumper by now. It's later than you think, and it's time to move. Throwing on your boots and a jacket, you toss a few things in your duffel bag, some cash, a few gold coins, credit cards, some letters and personal items. Then you grab your keys and head for the front door. Looking back over your shoulder, you scan the room one last time. What have you forgotten? What are you missing? You hear the voice announcing over the radio that the fire has now leapt the main road and is charging down the valley. It's clear this is no time for second guessing, not if you wish to remain among the quick. So you race out, Jump in your car and make for the emergency exit route. Alas, you're already halfway down the mountain when it hits you. Ah, I should have grabbed the dot, dot, dot. For some folks, that sinking feeling will be all too familiar. 2020 was nothing if not full of the unexpected. Of course, it doesn't have to be a wildfire that threatens your life and property or a flood, or a hurricane, or even a global health scare, such as the world has seen just this past year. In fact, natural disasters may well be the least of our worries. Over the course of our relatively brief cosmic existence, man has proven himself pretty adaptable when faced with the whimsical caprices of the gods. When the ground shakes and the heavens pour forth their torrents, we learn to build sturdier shelters and better infrastructure to keep our goods dry and our animals safe. Even pre-literate societies learn to pass warnings down to future generations by way of storytelling. Recall the villagers in Southeast Asia who, when they saw the tide rapidly receding before the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, knew it was time to head for higher ground. By hook or by crook, man learns over time to master his environment or at least to operate within the tolerably harmonious bounds that keep him from destroying it and it him. Far more worrying, however, are the disasters man foists upon himself and his hapless neighbours. Increasingly, 
We're finding that what was billed as the Great Plague of 2020 may well turn out to be not nearly as damaging as our collective governmental response to it by way of lockdowns, curfews, shuttered businesses, delayed medical screenings, isolated populations, the list goes on. In fact, the Lancet Medical Journal in the UK recently warned that, quote, substantial increases in the number of avoidable cancer deaths in England are to be expected as a result of diagnostic delays due to the COVID-19 pandemic in the UK. Millions of people the world over have foregone early screening and testing for countless medical conditions that nonetheless rage on undetected in the background, oblivious to COVID-19's headline-grabbing domination. These are conditions we can fully expect to show up months, maybe even years from now, oftentimes when it's too late. All this, of course, is to say nothing of the ever-receding tide of civil liberties, freedoms we readily surrender, one after the other, all for the false promise of a little security, leaving us all the more susceptible to that tsunami of man-made disaster building on the horizon. One man who has accrued plenty of hard-won experiential wisdom this year is our own Dan Denning. And so I think what we're trying to do as like-minded individuals with our families, with our own wealth, and then with the publications we write to, to people who we've met over the years who look to us for some out-of-the-box thinking and some guidance, is to basically build an arc. Dan began 2020 down in Australia, back when the bushfires there threatened to be the big news event of the year. After a while, seeing the COVID-19 on the wall, Dan decided to make a break for the US, where he landed just in time for rolling statewide lockdowns there and the summer of, quote, peaceful protests. And as if all that wasn't enough, he was recently made to evacuate his bolt hole in mountainous Colorado, where the wildfires there made it a full circle for 2020 natural disasters. I caught up with Dan shortly after that ordeal to see what he had learned through his year of disaster dodging and asked what he sees out on the horizon as far as political, financial and economic emergencies go. All that and plenty more in my conversation with Dan up next. Since we last spoke, <laughs> you've been spotted by various um, weather outlets and news channels uh, racing gangs of elk down the mountainside, which may sound a little, <laughs> a little strange. But um, as far as I want to get into the um, what to do in case of emergency conversation later, but uh, but before we do that, how are you vis-a-vis -vis Mother Nature and the uh, the forecast? Are you guys in the clear as far as wildfire season goes, or how's it look? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we were saved by a, you know a divine intervention or an act of Mother Nature or. I suppose if it were financial markets, it would be like the Fed intervening at the last minute with a giant put option <laughs> to save everybody. But it was quite, it was shocking really to, to be in a place where you, know, you psychologically and physically prepared as your refuge and then to, uh, then to have to leave. Now we, we could have stayed, I suppose. Um, and I know that uh, in Australia, and you probably know this as well, that people tend to have 
settled plans for fight or flight when it comes to bushfires and you have to follow that plan. Um, so we'd known that this was coming, but I didn't have a plan like that. So on the day that the, uh, that the evacuation order came, I'd woken up thinking, mm, we might have to be ready to go today and we might want to go today, but probably not. And then, uh, you know, for me, the, the obvious takeaway was, well, there were two, one really is that the week before I'd been paying attention to a fire to the north, and that was the largest wildfire in Colorado history and uh, seemed to present the, the biggest, most immediate threat. And when that fire burned east and, and like the last night that we could see it, we could literally see the flames on top of the hills in the distance. We thought, oh, that's, that's too bad for people that are east of that fire, but we're southwest of that fire now, so we're okay. Uh, and then the other fire blew up overnight. So it wasn't even the thing that I was expecting. You know, you, you, you think you're prepared for a, uh, an emergency, but it might not be the one that you planned for. And, that, and for that reason, you might not recognize it when it's <laughs> imminent and all of your best laid plans may, uh, may be put to the test sooner than you thought. So in the end, uh, fortunately, yeah, this, this snowstorm in the middle of October blew in from the east, which we call an upslope here. Normally they come from the west in the north. This one came from the east and uh, it stopped the fire about two miles from the, the town. And, um, and now the, the fire is contained, although it did burn some of the national park. But uh, yeah, it was, it was literally apocalyptic. The, went, the sky went from yellow and smoky to orange and smoky to black in about two hours. Yeah. And uh, we were caught in a line of, you know, thousands of cars trying to go down two roads at the same time. So lots of things to take away from it. Yeah, that seems like there's a lot of lessons in there, especially for somebody yeah. who began the year um, in, in Australia when we thought that maybe the, the Australian bushfires was going to be the big story of, of 2020, which seems a little silly looking back on now, but uh, little did we know. But you, uh, as we've spoken about before, you made the run or the decision to head back to the US and then you landed there just in time for uh, corona lockdowns and the summer of quote unquote peaceful protests. Uh, so you've had kind of a, uh, a 2020 of, you know, just sort of rolling catastrophes and, and near misses. But uh, I wanted to ask, I know you had a bug out bag with regards to this latest, um, you know, getting out of the door at the 11th hour. but looking back on on these near misses is there something you you said okay i, I was definitely prepared in this way and I'd, i would do that again and then conversely of course other things that you thought okay if i had to live that over again i would i'd change up these you know one two and three yeah for sure i i think that um there's uh, two two immediate takeaways for me were one uh, physical diversification is probably a good idea for your tangible assets and not just say having two passports. So, you know, you're physically diversified, ge geographically diversified, I should say, where you can live in multiple places and uh, if you have to, or if you want to. These days, you might not be allowed to, but assuming you were allowed to, you know, you have the passports to do it. But if, you're, uh, if you have valuable physical assets, uh, then don't put them all in one place. And uh, of course, I don't have them all in one place. But you know, if your primary residence is where you think you're going to be safest, and that's where you have, you know, your your uh, physical assets. So I'm talking 
you know, a bullion or wine or art or, or even just physical copies of really important paperwork like life insurance, your will, your copies of your lease, you know, if your house burns down and you have to prove that you can go back there. You know, those are things you don't normally think about, but, but if you're given an hour to take all of those things, you better have them ready. And in the case of the assets that you consider are you know, part of your wealth, don't have them all in one place. So I've, uh, I've revised that plan. And then I think the other thing is, you know, there are things that are nostalgic and sentimental and have value to you. So photographs, things that are irreplaceable, literally, that if they were destroyed, you would never have them again. And uh, you have to decide if you have room for those things or, or how important they are to you. But my rule of thumb now is if, if you can easily replace something, don't put it in a bag when you're walking out the door and you don't know if you're ever going to be able to come back because there's going to be a Walmart, there's going to be a Kmart, there's going to be a Target, Trader Joe's, wherever, where you, where you can go get that thing, whether it's a sweater or a pair of boots or something like that. So, you know, people tend to overpack clothing and heavy things and uh, they forget, you know, important things. So uh, it's a good object lesson in detaching yourself from your, um, attachment to things because most things can be replaced. If they can't be replaced, find a safe place for them. If you can't carry them with you. Uh, and then the things that you, that you'll need like birth certificate and paperwork, checkbook, um, credit cards, things like that, have those in your bag. And, uh, so this is kind of, um, bringing to mind the idea of, um, of a decentralized currency. I mean, you mentioned that you had, mm. you know, if you have some physical gold, you have some bullion, you have some small coins or what have you, obviously you want to take those with you. But uh, I know readers of the Bonner Denning letter will, will know that you're a big, uh, a big Midas metal fan. Are you, um, would you like to let us know if you had a, a crypto pen drive in the bag or is that <laughs> betraying your allegiance? <laughs> no, I, uh, I mean, I, I'm, my ownership in crypto is extremely passive. And uh, I don't have it uh, physically secured uh, separately. It's held in in custody by somebody or another institution, which has its own risks. And you know, I think that I think that's the other lesson is, uh, especially right now, that there are some risks that that uh, you simply can't hedge against, or you think you're you're hedging in this way. But there is just risk. No matter what we're mm -hmm. told, there is risk to any mm -hmm. position whether it's a bug out bag with some gold bullion in the bottom, or it's having 40% of your portfolio allocated to cash. You know, there's no such thing as a riskless position. And I think that from an investment point of view, what's really troubling for people right now is you're trying to pick is like me going from, from uh, Baltimore with bill in January and February, going up to New York city for a week, right before the virus hit New York city back to Colorado, knowing that when I was going to go to Australia, I was going to be able to get there, but not being sure when I was going to be able to get back. You know, this, these are the types of decisions people are making with their money right now, thinking, ah, should I be in 30-year treasury bonds? Should I buy the tech stocks? Should I rotate out of tech into value? Do I have enough gold? Holy cow, Bitcoin went to $16,000. Why didn't I buy it? Should I get more now? You know, it, you have to have a plan. You have to stick with it. And uh, the truth is no one solution, no one asset, no one plan 
is going to fully protect you. And I think that's a hard thing for people to get their head around psychologically because we, we grew up in an era and we're coming out of an era where everything seemed risk-free. And that's not the case anymore. It never was the case. But I think people are being forced psychologically to understand no matter what I do, there's, there's a risk that I'm going to lose money or that the things that are valuable to me could be destroyed. Yeah, and I guess this is it's coming um, front and center in everybody's life now because the decisions that we used to make, you know, just to go down to the beach or to go to a restaurant or jump on a plane, you know, uh, like you were just saying, they used to be decisions that we used to think were relatively risk-free. But now, you know, walking outside with or without a mask, um, you know, having a group, a gathering of ten or twelve people, all of these things are are decisions that that are very much at the fore of of everybody's mind right now. So uh, with that, I guess the the question at the moment um, for people listening to this uh, conversation later, we've recorded this about, a well, a week or 10 days after the uh, general election. And the big news uh, market-wise is that it looks like Pfizer have uh, made some inroads to developing their vaccine. Um, they've announced 90% efficacy rates in clinical trials. Um, Fauci called it extraordinary, et cetera, et cetera. So is there uh, a plausible bull narrative that you can kind of get behind here where, I don't know, um, planes fill up again, you know, hotels are booked out, the whole, the whole uh, economy is sort of back to business as usual, or are you still kind of wary that... Um, that Bidenomics, as we as we imagine it, with higher taxes and skyrocketing unemployment, onerous you know regulatory environment, particularly for U.S. energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that that's just too much of a headwind for for us to be able to get through. Well, I don't believe it. First of all, so you know, I believe it when I see it. But I think the, the vaccine. Do you mean? Yeah, yeah, hundred uh-huh. percent. I think that's. The timing was just too close to the election for it to be mm-hmm. coincidental. And uh, the fact that the CEO had liquidated a large position of his, his, his own in the stock on right. the day, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it is what it is. It's a piece of information that tells you something. But, uh, you know, so, yeah, of course, the, uh, the, there's this, this pent-up enthusiasm that if the thing were suddenly over then we could get back to normal. So you saw travel stocks, cruise ships, entertainment stocks, Mm -hmm. anything that was related to people having a so-called normal life did quite well on Monday. But if you look at it, if you look at what has to happen between now and when a theoretic vaccine would be rolled out at a global level, which is terrifying to me just to say that, but let's say that was five or six months now, which they said, well, we don't have it. We think it works, but it's going to take us this long to, to get it up to warp speed. And the military is going to come knock on your door and vaccinate you, which sounds even worse to me. <laughs> but, you know, w- w- what that gives them is it gives them a, a, a rationale and a just cause for a winter lockdown in the Northern Hemisphere and saying, nobody go anywhere. Nobody move. Stay in your house. The vaccine is coming. Don't go to Thanksgiving, cancel Christmas, you know, and that is a massive blow economically because mm. when you've got all these people who, uh, who are going to be shut down again with a lockdown, who can't work, uh, and then you've got 
tens of thousands of small businesses who will not survive. And they, they may not have survived anyway, but the idea that, that you can just throw that at small businesses and then make, create some mechanism where they can access government cash to tide them over, is, that's such a profound misunderstanding of how entrepreneurs think and operate that only an asshole in the government could think that it would work, that we can print trillions of dollars to tide over thousands of small businesses while we tell everybody to stay at home in what amounts to house arrest. But I think, unfortunately, that's exactly what's coming. And so I think economically what you're going to see is just a, um, at, at the ground level in the, in the real American economy, lots and lots of people uh, unemployed, lots and lots of small businesses closing. But um, this is what's weird about it, that that's what's happening in the real economy. And then in the fake economy on Wall Street, you have trillions in stimulus, you have the Fed monetizing the debt that the federal government's going to have to uh, incur to pay that stimulus. So the Fed's balance sheet expands. And Wall Street seems to love that. That seems mm -hmm. to be good for that economy. Or from a rational point of view, if you see the government doing that with money, then maybe your best bet is to get as much of your money into gold, cryptos, and stocks, because they're the only place that's not going to go up in flames. So, you know, I, I think that's the worst case scenario for me. You know, the best case scenario is that there's an actual vaccine that doesn't have horrendous side effects that we are not forced to take and that we don't have to, our, our access to public life is not limited if we're unwilling to take the vaccine. But to me, that's the other part of it is it, is it accelerates all the authoritarian tendencies mm. toward travel, public life, and also toward money. So one of the things that's happened since you and I last talked is just a slew of uh, development on the official backing for central bank digital currencies. So something that was theoretic two or three years ago now looks like it might happen. Well, it already has happened in several places. And uh, you have the, the president of the European Union, the president of the European Central Bank, all saying, hey, this digital currency thing in, in two or four years. That means it's already happening. So uh, to me, that's another mechanism for control and, and this creeping authoritarianism. Uh, but yeah, so my, <laughs> you know, I'm glad to be alive and I'm glad that my stuff hasn't burned down. But all these things, <laughs> all these things seem to be catalysts for the, for, for the worst trends that we've been following. And that's, that's discouraging. Yeah, and on that, uh, on that digital currency or the government digital currency front, uh, I mean, way to take a wonderful free market idea and Frankenstein it. Um, you know, with state involvement. I mean, the whole idea of cryptocurrency from its inception back in 2008, as evidenced by the message that was carried in the Genesis block, uh, Bitcoin's Genesis block, which was something like European bank on the verge of second bailout. I mean, it was very much an anti-government pro-free market technological advancement that was supposed to be able to hedge or allow regular citizens to hedge against government profligacy and now to see uh, states around the world kind of co-opting that idea uh, and turning you know bastardizing it to their own ends uh, is is more than disappointing to say the least but i guess uh, in uh, as you alluded to earlier in 
in an environment of fear where people are, you know, wondering whether or not they can even go to Thanksgiving without, you know, the police or the military knocking on their door, depending where they are, uh, you know, people are willing to swallow, it seems just about anything, uh, you know, in order for what is it that trading, trading all their liberty for any safety that's, uh, that's dangled in front of them. Uh, well, uh, you know, I don't know uh, how much people think about this stuff, to be honest. We think about it a lot because we, we think it's one of the most important stories uh, that affects your financial independence and your, your ability to live your life the way you want. But to, I think most people, these are just technology questions and they don't mm -hmm. think about the nature of money and the nature of money's control over their life. But clearly the people uh, in the official central bank capacity do, and you're spot on that, you know, all of the, we're going to get all the worst elements of, of centralized fiat money with digital surveillance and none of the decentralized, limited, peer-to-peer -peer privacy elements that, that we were promised with Bitcoin and crypto. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing so many people uh, embrace Bitcoin suddenly. Stanley Druckenmiller came out and talked about it. Ray Dalio still thinks it's going to be made illegal. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't read him that often, but I think that's a legitimate um, worry, uh, confiscation. and, and uh, But this is really a counterattack by the financial authorities to, um, it's like the counter-revolution with the Jesuits that here came the marketplace with this idea of, of a new idea of money that the government didn't control. And people are like, okay, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. And then the government said, oh, crap, that's a threat. <laughs> right, <laughs> so we, right, we, exactly. we, we better get on that. And what's happened in the last month is they've gotten on it. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in 2021. But it's happening now. It's not something that's happening five years from now. It's happening now. And so what I've told people is if you want to move your money, you better move it while, it's, while there are no capital controls in place and while it's still mobile. So Yeah, that was a, that was a, an, a very effective refrain in your last, um, last Bono Denning um, issue, I think. You, you kept coming back to the refrain that it's later than you think. And I think that's, that was a, a very key takeaway. Um, whether whether you're you're racing gangs of elk down the mountainside or trying to get your money out of fiat and into some kind of hedge against uh, against state sponsored stupidity, but I'm interested to in your opinion on how all of this maps onto. I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't at least sort of mention the political backdrop to all of this. I think, but how all of this risk and turbulence in in both the market and and in civil society maps onto what we just saw a week or 10 days ago, whatever it is, uh, in the general election where uh, all the pollsters, you know, thought that it would be totally one-sided. They were, of course, uh, incorrect, as incorrect as they were enthusiastic about their own omnipotence, but that's, that's not unusual. But what we did see is an almost down the line uh, divided nation, which you'll know better than I do, but I don't know whether we've seen it's sort of 49, 51 in so many states, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, and a bunch of others. Uh, how does all of this kind of tumult and uncertainty map onto what I think can, could be correctly described as a genuinely divided country at this point? Well, I think uh, on the one hand, it, we have to be encouraged that 
the uh, anticipated torching of American cities and looting of drugstores and uh, stealing of 65-inch high ultra high definition televisions did not happen and i think it's because the you know conservatives in the united states generally don't as pj o'rourke said they don't they don't riot in and loot brooks brothers when they lose elections <laughs> yeah, behavior behaviorally conservative generally as well well they don't view politics as a life and death uh, sport and i you know i don't tend to take sides i'm a small c conservative and i think you know, my goal is to, to have elections that don't matter at all. You know, why does an election have to be the most important thing in your life? That's the sort of thing you say when, when you want to exercise control over other people. And um, it's, it's still possible if the courts throw out ballots in certain states or, or find cases of fraud. You know, a week ago we said there was no fraud. And now, well, it, was, it wasn't widespread fraud. And it wasn't fraud that that affected the result of the election. So it's still possible until the states certify their results and until the electoral college meets and, and casts its votes that, um, that there could be uh, some civil unrest from uh, people on the left who think that the election is being stolen by the Russians. But uh, I think what it tells me to get to your question is that the narrative that there would be civil unrest and, and that there would be violence is really a threat to say, if, if Americans voted for Trump again, then we're gonna burn the place down. And 70 million Americans voted for Trump again. Actually, 70 million Americans voted for Trump last time it was 64. So to me, it shows that there hasn't been any change since 2016 in terms of how evenly divided the electorate is between Republicans and Democrats. But it also tells me there hasn't been any change in America about the serious issues that the country faces that neither party is talking about. Hmm. You know, they're not talking about the $27 trillion debt. They're not talking about $150 trillion in unfunded liabilities. They're not talking about what that means to the dollar or the bond market either way. And so the gold price went down, not up. So the important conversations aren't being had. Fortunately, people didn't shoot each other. That could still happen. Um, but maybe the national temperature will be lowered uh, and then as the pot boils, <laughs> we won't <laughs> notice that we're being boiled alive. Uh, it's just it, it didn't boil over yet. Didn't boil over this time. Yeah, I was, uh, I must admit, as a, a minarchist with anarchist inclinations, I was most disappointed to see the, the voter turnout tick significantly higher during the last uh, during the last election, I, I kind of like the vote of no confidence by by fully abstaining at the ballot box, sending that message to the to go back to PJ O'Rourke. It's what was it? Don't vote. It just encourages the bastards. I think that was another O'Rourke. I mean, it was uh, such an important election that even dead people got out of the grave and voted. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's um, it is interesting to to. Uh, to contemplate the fact that, you know, like we were saying at the beginning of this conversation where you used to just get, go and get on a plane, you used to go to have a barbecue and these were not considered things that you necessarily had to, had to think about. It does seem now that, that uh, the public sphere is increasingly encroaching on the private sphere and that uh, politics, you know, you can barely get through a conversation with somebody without, uh, you know, without the big man's name coming up in the first few sentences. 
Um, now that it looks like, and you know, there's still pending litigation, and we're not exactly sure how this is going to go. But um, are you heartened at all that if there is um, a Democrat win, as the Biden camp is is claiming, that uh, we we at least won't have to deal with with the T word at the front and center of every conversation for the next four years? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it would be nice to not have to talk about politics all the time with everybody, <laughs> strangers. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the hallmark of our age. That's the hallmark of centralization. That's why in finance, what do we talk about? We talk about the Fed. We talk about negative interest rates. We talk about real interest rates because we live in a centralized, politicized world. And that that is not heartening and that so many people when you talk about stuff, well, what's the public policy solution? What's the government going to do? What's the Fed going to do? Maybe nothing. Maybe they should just shut mm. up and go away. Like maybe <laughs> that would be better. But it, it, I think it, Trump, if he eventually accepts his defeats, he's still the president for the next 70 days or so. And it was n notable that there was kind of a, uh, um, lump of resignations from the Pentagon because the scuttlebutt is that he will just withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan and those that are in Iraq. Already, you've heard Biden say, we're going to reverse the decision to have U.S. troops in Germany. Mm. So, Joel, World War II ended in 1945. Oh, it's only 75 years. What's I mean, three quarters of a century? You could have had three generations of the same family militarily over there just taking They could taking be nationalized German citizens by now. I mean, they, right. they, they could vote in Germany probably. But, you know, it's, it's crazy that he, all of the things that Trump said he was going to do or the grievances that people had that caused them to vote for him are, are stronger now than they were in 2016. Mm. You have people uh, who are sending their sons and daughters over to fight in wars, which no one knows why we're there anymore. No one knows what the interest is, but the people in the Pentagon and the people in the defense establishment, which includes Joe Biden, say, we can't leave. Be irresponsible. It's a mess. We should invoke the 25th Amendment and remove the president from office now so that he doesn't reveal secrets or pardon Julian Assange or pardon mm -hmm. Chelsea Manning or pardon Edward Snowden. Couldn't have that. You know, we, could, we couldn't have the commander in chief uh, deciding that. That, that it wasn't safe, you know, there was no point in having Americans over there. So to me, that is not heartening, is that the war, the war party, as David Stockman calls them, is a bipartisan party of people in Washington who have never found a war they didn't want to fight. And mm. uh, Biden is, you know, a leader of that party. Hillary Clinton's probably the spiritual leader of that party. <laughs> but uh, John McCain was a member of it. Plenty of Republicans yeah. are members of it. And so... To the extent that it's back to business as usual for the war party, that's bad for Americans. Even if yeah, Trump's I think gone. it's it's worth it's certainly worth pointing out that uh, of the seventy five years that have elapsed since uh, since the end of World War Two, uh, Joe Biden has been in Washington for sixty six percent of that time, forty seven odd years. So yeah, he's been certainly front and center of the of of the war party for the better part of half a century, which kind of sounds absurd. Um, but I think maybe when we're talking about the kind of <clears throat> the general idea that we're now outsourcing all of our moral resp responsibility to the state 
and that they're sort of subsuming all of our of our day-to-day um, decisions, activities. They're providing what they would call a risk-free environment for us with, um, you know, with just giving us this big blanket of cash, uh, taking over entrepreneurs' decisions, freeing them from having to make uh, any decisions on their own, exactly the opposite of what a healthy and dynamic economy would look like. It's probably worth pointing out now that our part of our mission here at the uh, Bonner Private Research Group is to put that control back in the hands of individuals and to try and give them the tools to be able to make their own individual responsibility, individual decisions and take responsibility for their own destiny and, and, and their own lives. So uh, before we wrap it up here, do you want to maybe just talk a little bit about what we're doing with this project and how you see that being empowering for uh, the individual in the age of all-encompassing statism? <laughs> oh, just tee it up for me there, Joel. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, first, there's, a, there's a handful of movie franchises and television shows that are always on TV, no matter what, like you could have Hulu, YouTube TV or network TV or a cable provider. But some of these movies like Law and Order is always on somewhere in the world. Baywatch used to always be on somewhere in the world. And one of the movies that I've noticed is always on somewhere in the world <laughs> is 2012. You know, the movie about the movie that just eight years early, basically, the movie about the, the destruction of the world. But, you know, the, the Chinese build these huge arcs that people get on uh, to survive the rising of the seas as the plate tectonics shift and the planet tears itself apart. And then they, uh, they fill them up with, you know, important people, not, not ordinary people. Uh, and then they're supposed to survive the destruction Elites. of the world that Elites. way. <laughs> yeah, obviously. So uh, I prefer the the earlier Noah's Ark version where the animals got on the ark two by two and and uh, they planned ahead and knew that it was going to come, knew that it was going to rain. Noah did. Not a lot of people believed him. So, I, I mean, to dispense with the metaphor, Cassandra. I think uh, I think we're in a long transition between the end of a monetary system, the Bretton Woods system, the end of the dollar as the world's single reserve currency, and the U.S. as the predominant superpower who is the guarantor and the enforcer of what is called a rules-based order, where institutions like the World Bank, the United Nations, the IMF are um, are outlets of u.s power obviously all that's coming unraveled right now but it won't you know it will take decades for that to unravel some of it will happen faster than others so the delegitimization of some of those institutions and the changing of of the world's monetary order that that's happening now and so i think we're trying to do as like-minded individuals with our families with our own wealth and then with the publications we write to, to people who we've met over the years who looked to us for, for some out of the box thinking and some guidance is to basically build an arc and figure out, we don't know how long we're gonna be out to sea. We don't know how high the, the, the floodwaters are gonna rise, uh, but we, we know that it's coming and we need to be prepared for it. And we know that the, the conventional people that we hear from in the media 
on Wall Street, these people are no help to us. They're absolutely no help to us uh, because they're they're they are heavily invested in nothing changing, and that's why they fought so hard against things changing because they have the most to lose from what's coming. So you know, it's it's a it's an expansive project for me because it's it's not just about the top stock for 2021. Uh, and it's not just about uh, an asset allocation strategy that beats the S&P 500. Talking about how to make sure that all the hard work you've done in your entire life that's saved up in either cash or in financial assets or in commercial real estate or residential real estate is not destroyed in the next 10 years. And you don't have anything to leave to your family or your children. That's what we're talking about. To me, anyway, that's the nature of the project is how do we avoid a catastrophic loss uh, as these forces of big government, big tech, centralized finance, digital currencies, as they converge in what I think now is quite clearly an attack on small enterprise, on personal freedom, on individual liberty, on the rule of law, and on sound money. If you don't see that now, then don't get on our boat because we can't help you and you're going to hate the food. But, uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, those are not easy problems and some of them are beyond our control anyway, right? We can't solve those problems uh, with one simple stock pick or something like that. But the first thing we can do is be aware of them and, and, and understand the nature of the risk and the threat that we face and then systematically try and, and do whatever we can to, to mitigate that or hedge against it or minimize it. And occasionally there may be chances to, uh, to make a lot of money as well. So, you know, we have friends that focus on energy stocks, gold and silver mining companies, and a lot of cryptocurrency stuff. So we don't have to be inherently defensive, but, but I think, you know, we're, it's raining, the water levels are rising, and our boat is ready to launch. So that, that's where I think the project is right now. Excellent, excellent. And uh, we want to avoid, of course, being like those two dinosaurs that are standing on the shoreline looking at uh, Noah's Ark <laughs> sailing over the horizon thinking, oh gosh, was that today? But oh crap, as, was that today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I always use that story when we used to have conferences because it was okay for people to meet in public. Uh, I would say- Back in the day. <laughs> you know, the day, if you accept the theory that a giant asteroid hit the earth and that was responsible for, for the death of the dinosaurs or their extinction, that was a terrible day to be a dinosaur. Very bad day to be a dinosaur. It was a great day to be a mammal because that signaled the rise of uh, the one species whose main physical advantage wasn't uh, outside but inside. So it wasn't claws or fur or feet or neck. or It was your brain, uh, your capacity to think. Uh, for yourself, and uh, uh, that was the rise of the mammals, the the hairless apes. So uh, you know you can still do that. I, th I think our warm bloodedness and adaptability played a, a factor over the uh, the cold blooded reptiles who were confined to <laughs> certain uh, latitudinal. <laughs> well, that's true. You know, ad adaptability, mobility, and uh, you know, mobility is both physical and a mental characteristic. Bill and and uh, Tom Dyson and I widely expect based on study of history that the next financial disaster will be inflationary or hyperinflationary that you can't have a currency 
uh, go down the tubes without seeing prices go out of control. That's happened for the last 3,000 years. But it looks like what we have right now is deflation in the real economy and hyperinflation in the financial economy. So I, you know, those are novel circumstances. That's an ecosystem that, that gold bugs are not necessarily adapted to live in. And so we may have to learn from our crypto brothers a little bit about wow. some, some survival skills. But don't, don't tell Bill I said that. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's fodder perhaps for another conversation. But let's, let's leave it with your refrain uh, for listeners that it is indeed later than you probably think. So uh, it's about time to take heed of the warnings and uh, don't miss that arc. So thanks a lot, Dan. Uh, yeah, it's no great talking still. to you. Catch up again soon, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.